This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. Our guest today tells us that God's gift of Jesus should remind us of who we were without Him. Only God's grace gives each of us a new identity in Christ. He is the only one who justifies. Yet, so many relationship problems with others are rooted in our pride. Today, we'll see how a gift of God's grace may well be the healing balm needed in our relationship with others and our fellowship with God. Scott Pollock is the lead pastor of Faith Bible Church of the Woodlands and author of the booklet, Grace, Simple, Profound. At the end of our podcast, we'll tell you how to download a free copy. Let's listen now as Pastor Pollock talks about a gift of grace that can transform your relationships with others. Where would you be without Jesus? Big question. What would your life look like without Jesus? I don't know if you think about that. I think about it often, actually. Um, And I shudder at the thought of what my life would look like without Jesus. I'm pretty sure my heart would be cold and dark because I felt my heart headed in that direction when I met Jesus. I'd probably be very, very lonely because I'm not good at relationships apart from Jesus. Um, I may have all kinds of addictions. I may be still seeking fame and glory for myself and being unsatisfied with the result of it. I don't know where I would be. I know I wouldn't have met Liza, which means I wouldn't have met all of her family, her mother and brothers, and uh, wouldn't have my kids. Um, And all of that is only because of Jesus. Where would you be without Jesus? You think about that? Um, The reason why I ask you that this morning is the answer to that question is important for you. Because the gift of God's grace in our life, what Jesus gives us freely, um, reminds us and should remind us of who we were without Him, of who we were before we met Him. And that memory is a, is a gift in and of itself. And as we look at um, the very relational aspect of God's grace today, um, that will help us understand how we can approach relationships in an entirely new way. How do you approach relationships in your life? Do you approach it like up to a stranger? You know, kind of stranger danger, stay low, protect your valuables, you know, move forward slowly, uh, keep your center of balance, okay? And uh, not quite sure because people have hurt you in the past and you're pretty sure that uh, this new person is capable of hurting you in the present and uh, we're not going to let them in real fast. We're not going to open ourselves up. Do you move towards relationships like that? Or maybe you move towards relationships like my son Andrew and I do and we just sort of bare our chest and walk straight ahead. You know, like, hey, my son is always walking up to people. Hi, my name's Andrew. What's yours? You know, and I'm like, I love that. And I kind of do that too um, because of what Jesus has done. 
I just kind of walk into situations, not necessarily knowing if they're going to be sticky or messy or, or sharp or what. Um, and sometimes it's difficult. And other people, instead of moving forward, even slowly, when you think about relationships, you're moving backwards. You're like, I don't, I don't think I want, I, I got enough friends. Um, and I have enough family, and, and they provide enough drama for me, right? And so um, I'm good. I'm good in that department, right? How do you approach relationships? Relationships are heavy. Relationships are hard. They can give us the greatest amount of joy, and they can wound us like no knife in the, wor- in the world can, right? How do you approach relationships? I would like to show you today one of the other gifts of God's grace that will radically change the way that you and I approach relationships, or can, if we're willing to uh, walk its path, right? We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'd love to walk through all of the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians with you, uh, but that would be a long and very boring sermon. And so you're welcome. We're only going to do seven verses today of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But as you turn in your Bible there, let me tell you a little bit about the book quickly. Uh, Apostle Paul and a guy named Sosthenes wrote this book. Um, So for all you people who are looking for a baby's name, there's one. Um, (laughs) Paul and Sosthenes wrote this book to a very metropolitan city, Corinth. Gavin, Andre, and I and uh, Liza and a couple other folks of you have uh, been to Corinth, maybe. Um, And if you have been, you got there way too late, okay, because ancient Corinth was very different. Um, And it was kind of a combination between New York City and Las Vegas and a little Los Angeles thrown into boot. It was very, very cultural. It was very competitive. They had a version of the, uh, an early version of like the Olympic Games that happened there pretty regularly. Um, There were 26 places of worship in the city of Corinth to different gods in various ways, uh, not least of which was the temple on top of the mountain behind the city called Acrocorinth, above Corinth. Massive temple in that day, just ruins now, uh, complete with temple prostitutes and all manner of worship up there, at least 26 places. So it was confused. It was all searching wisdom. It was into sensual pleasures and wealthy independence. There's lots of money, lots of affluence, lots of culture, lots of drama. And here in the midst of that is a small church, a very young church, that Paul was influential in. And he's writing the letter of 1 Corinthians into this church speaking to specific issues. In fact, this is not the first letter that Paul wrote to the city, to the church. It's the first one that we have in our scriptures, the first one that history has protected for us. And so we call it 1 Corinthians, but there is, in my language, a zero Corinthians that he wrote previously to this letter because he mentions it in this letter. So this is not the first, but this is the first one that we have. And it's 16 chapters long because he's writing into the situation and he speaks about these topics. The first four chapters, which are important for us today, are about relationships, about division, quarrels, disunity. He then goes on to a happier subject of sexual immorality, okay? After that is idolatry. And then the last section of the book is really about worship within the church, head coverings, uh, spiritual gifts, the Lord's Supper, giving, things like that, all, can, all to do with worship within the church. And he's writing these things into this small church, in this culture, in this city, because they're struggling with all of these, okay? And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, but let me give you a brief paraphrase recap of the previous three chapters, okay? 
And then we'll read this, these seven verses together. It starts like this. In about verse 6, 5 or 6 of chapter 1, Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you for his grace. Because by his grace, he's given you everything that you need. Okay? He's provided everything you need by his grace. And in verse 10, he says, let's get to it. I hear that there's some quarrels and divisions among you. Okay? Some of you said... I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Peter, or I'm of Jesus, on and on and on. And let me tell you why you're fighting so much. It's because of pride. Pride. Where does pride come from? Not from Jesus. Pride comes from Satan. Pride does not come from Jesus. And pride is what's making you fight. Let me ask you a question, Paul says. How did God rescue you? And where were you when God found you? Did God rescue you because you were smart? Because you were a great debater or speaker or because you were wise according to the world. No, God rescued you in what you used to consider foolishness. That God would come and die on a cross for you. The world thinks that is insanity and that's how God did it. It's foolishness to the world, but it's the power and wisdom of God to those who are being saved. So where is the debater? Where's the wise person? What's your problem? Why are you judging each other? and having fights. You think you're smarter. You think you're better. You think you need more space than everybody else. It's the pride that's in your heart that's making you boast and putting you at odds with one another. Stop it. He says, did I come to you in boasting or bragging or beating you with a rod? That's not how I came. I came in fear and trembling. I was nervous to come to you because I want your faith to rest not in my wise words, but in the power of the Spirit, in Jesus Christ. And so, stop your bickering. Stop your boasting. He mentions that several times. Where were you? Do you remember what your life was like before Jesus, he says to them? You were ungodly. You were sinners. You were enemies. And God rescued you. So, therefore, think again about why you're having trouble in relationships. Think again about why you're having quarrels and disunity. How are you seeing each other? Okay, let's take a pause in chapter 4, because this is where he comes. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is our text. Let a man regard us in this manner. Us represents either Paul and Sosthenes or probably Paul and Apollos, one of the other people they're arguing about, another godly missionary. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself or I'm conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant on behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Let's go back to verse 1. 
He's changing the game a little bit. And as a good preacher, as a good pastor, he's turning down the heat on the Corinthians just a little bit because he's been after them. He's been sharply speaking to them in the first three chapters. I would encourage you sometime this week to read the first three or four chapters to get your head. The argument is very simple to follow, okay? But he's been high heat under the people. He's been after them. And then in chapter four, he turns down the heat a little bit and he goes, oh, let's talk about me for a second, okay? I want to relate to you, want to be vulnerable with you. It's a good pastor, good preacher does. He says, I want you to think about Apollos and I, or Sosthenes and I. And I want you to regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This, these words are pretty unusual for Paul. The word that he uses for servant is a little different than the most common word that he uses here. And the word steward, uh, Paul doesn't often use the word in, in that sense, okay? And so he's bringing some new vocabulary that would heighten people's attention. Oh, a servant of Christ. I want you to regard me as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. He's talking about some identity here. What is your identity? If you think about that, not your identity in the world. Most people would say, well, uh, I'm a husband. I'm a mother. I'm a lawyer or a stay-at-home mom. I'm a homeschooler. I'm a um, whatever. That, that's not necessarily your identity. It is regarding the world, but what about your identity in Christ? What's your identity there? Well, you're an adopted son, a forever daughter, fully known, fully loved, and fully welcomed into God's family, secure and assured in that relationship. That's your identity. You don't have to perform to stay with God. You don't have to uh, persevere in a certain standard of holiness to be in right with God. He has declared you righteous. That's what we've seen the last few weeks. That God's gift of grace, because of what Jesus has done, was the most expensive gift ever purchased. It costs the life of God. That's what you're worth. And then he gives it to you and I for free based on our faith in Jesus. And the only requirement for salvation is faith in Jesus because he gives it to us as a free gift of his grace. Where do works fit in? Works are extremely important. But they do not make us available to salvation. We do not earn our salvation or earn savability by our works. But does God want us to be holy and do good things? Absolutely. They flow out of our salvation in gratitude and joy and freedom to walk in holiness and good deeds and repentance and confession and all those biblical ideas. Absolutely critical. Can you know that you are saved? Can you have assurance of that? Yes, you can. We looked at that last week. Because of the gift of God's grace, you can be assured of your salvation because of the promise of God, not because of any performance on your part. Can you be secure in your salvation? Yes, you can. God gives you security as a gift of his grace based on the power of God to keep you, not your perseverance in some standard of holiness. Those are gifts of God's grace. That is your identity in Christ. Now, Paul says to the Corinthians, I want you to think of me as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, think about that for a second. Who determines um, the specifics of servitude when you're a servant? Do you? Of course not. 
your master does, okay? He is a servant of Christ. So Christ is the one who determines that. When you are a steward, one who has been given a trust, who declares whether or not you're good at that job? (laughs) You? No. The one who has entrusted things to you. They are stewards of the mysteries of God. So Christ is the Lord of their service, and God is the standard of their stewardship. He says, I want you to think of us in this way. Then he moves on to these really cryptic verses on judgment. You're thinking, read these before, Scott, and I don't know what they mean, and I'm right there with you. I've read those many times, and I'm like, does Paul not even care about what he does? Does he not give any thought about what he says or what he thinks? He says, I don't even judge myself. I just do what feels good, you know? How's that going for you? Does anybody try that? Please don't. It's bad. It's bad, okay? Dangerous. That's not what Paul's saying. Let me walk you through it. Verse 2, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Now, he's a steward of the mysteries of God. Who declares if he's trustworthy or not? God does. He's a servant of Christ. Who declares if he's good at his service or not? Christ does. Okay? That's Paul's point, very simply. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you. You remember the problem that he's speaking into? Judgment? Judgmental attitudes towards each other? Paul says, I know you're judging me. doesn't bother me at all. I wish I had Paul's heart because judgment bothers me. How about you? All right? Judgment's hard, okay? He says, it's a very small thing for me to be examined by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. I don't even judge myself. Now, why would he say that? I am conscious of nothing against myself, verse 4, yet I am not by this acquitted. He said, it doesn't make any difference. Why? Verse 5. The end of verse 4. But the one who examines me is the Lord. There's the point. I don't care if you judge me. I don't care if any human court judges me. I can't even judge if I'm a good servant or a good steward of myself. It's only the Lord who does that, okay? So already he's, he's, bringing, he's bringing part of his argument down over the judgmental attitudes in the church, okay? Do you see that? They're looking at each other saying, I'm of this and you're of that and I think I know more than you and I'm better than you are and I'm more important than you and I've got more letters after my name than you or I work harder than you. And he's saying, hold on just a second. Who, who judges? Who judges? It's the Lord who judges, not you, not me, not any human court. This is right out of Romans 8. We read it last week. If God be for us, who can be against us, right? My favorite part is after that. Is he the one who justifies? He's the one who justifies. And if that's true, who could possibly condemn us? If God declares us righteous, what if some punk comes and says, you're not? Do you believe the punk? No. God is the one who declares you righteous. So who can condemn you? He said, if God is the one who judges us, why are we judging each other? This is only the beginning of his argument, okay? Follow along, verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time of judgment. When the Lord comes and will reveal the secrets of every man's heart and the intentions of his heart, and all will be made clear, it is not your place to do so. How much, let me ask you a question, how much relational problems, how many relational problems can find their root in pride and judgment? Would you say some of them or most of them or all of them? I, 
I'm leaning towards all, okay? How many relational problems find their root in pride or the fruit of pride, selfishness, arrogance, disregard for another? I think a lot. He says, do not go on passing judgment. And here's where it really hits the road. Look at verse 6 and 7. Now, all these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake. Okay? That's what he says. I just turned the heat down on you just for a second. And I've pulled your attention over here to focus on me and Apollos. But I've done that to show you something. Okay? Here's the point. So that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant on behalf of one against the other. That word arrogant is awesome. It's only used a couple of times in the New Testament, and it means to puff up and inflate with a pair of bellows. It means that a person has an overinflated self-conception. He says, don't be puffed up in regard one to another. And then he mentions the key word for this whole chapter, this whole section. For who regards you as superior? Why have you, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Boast. He mentions that three or four times in these chapters. Boasting. Why do you have relational problems? Pride and boasting. You're judging each other when God is the only one who judges. What's his point? His point is this. At the beginning, he says, God's grace has given you everything that you need. Now, where did God's grace find you? What uh, would your life look like without Jesus? You see, God reminds us of what we were without him. God's grace reminds us of where we were without Jesus. It should remind you. God's grace reminds us of where we were without him. And where were we? I'll give you a simple answer. We were all together in the same place. We were all together in the same place. And that is at the bottom of a deep, dark hole. So if God's grace found us when we were all at the same place, which is Romans 5 we talked about last week, says helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies of God. We could not get further away than we were. It's like some of us saying, hey, give you a rock, we'll all go outside. The goal is throwing the rock at the North Pole, landing on the North Pole. Got it? Okay, cool. Some of us would throw a little bit further than the other. None of us would even get remotely close. We're all in the same hole. We're all in the same hole. So if that's true, and God's grace is the only reason why we're out of it, you see how that can become a radically new way of seeing the relationships that we're in. It diffuses judgment, superiority, classism of every kind. It's the gift of humility inside of grace. Now, once I say that word, I've waited a few minutes to say that word, because once somebody says the word humility, most people go, and we're done, okay? Because humility, let's be honest with each other, okay, is rather ethereal. There is no really 12-step plan to become humble. I've yet to find one. I've read Andrew Murray's classic humility probably three or four times, and it's really, really good. It's very biblical. But you know what you'll find in Andrew Murray's book is very few practical steps towards coming 
towards becoming humble. There are some, and they're great, but there's not a lot. So how, if somebody asked you, how do you become humble, what would you say? What would you say? Well, um, I, I know how to build muscles, go to a gym, do these exercises, eat that, don't eat that, equals muscles, okay? Uh, uh, intelligence, uh, go here, study that, read this book, go to a college or a course or whatever, study equals intelligence, okay? Um, how do we uh, find a spouse, okay? Match.com, Christians, whatever, right? Uh, we go there, um, love, promise equals marriage, okay? How do you become humble? Um, I, I'm not sure. How would you answer that? See, it becomes really difficult, doesn't it? We can define it all day. We can give pictures of it all day. But when it comes right down to it, how do you get humble? How do you gain humility? How do you grow in humility? It's difficult. It's difficult. I know of two ways, and I've been thinking about this for years. I know of only two ways. One of them's hard, and the other one stinks. Okay? The hard one is to value humility so much and become and develop a distaste for pride so much that you just start seeking it intentionally. And it's a slow process that you walk through. That's the hard one. The stinky one and how to gain humility is to be crushed by the world, to be broken, to end up somewhere where you are humiliated by something are crushed by something, and your pride is flattened by the world, by cancer, by a relationship, by a divorce, by something you've done or something done to you. And then all of a sudden in that place, humility is one of the options. There's lots of others, right? Darkness, callousness, anger, bitterness. Humility is only one of many options in that place, but I can still only think of two ways intentionally seeking it out or being crushed and having a possibility that in that moment you could seek it out. I would hope none of you choose the second. I've experienced a little bit of the second and some of you have, a lot of you have. It's not easy. It's not hard. Uh, it's, not, it's not good. It's not good. It's not fun. Okay? The better way is to value humility and what it can bring in your life, especially relationally, and then begin to seek it intentionally. So what is humility? Lots of definitions. I hope to give you one that is unlike them all, okay? Not because I want to be novel, but because I'm trying to really find it with you. What is humility? Humility is the active rejection of pride in all of its forms and the active pursuit of the character of Jesus. You see, humility is active. That's what I'm trying to teach you. Humility is the active rejection of pride in all of its forms, which you have to turn your mind on to see those things. Where does pride exist in me? In my responses to people, in my thoughts about relationships, in my thoughts about God or myself. Is the active rejection of pride in all its forms and the active pursuit of the character of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is anything in a word, humble's got to be up at the top of the list, doesn't it? He who did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, Philippians 2, but humbled himself to take the form of a servant, not only a servant, but a servant who died, not only a servant who died, but a servant who died on the cross in great humiliation. 
He says, the king of the universe, nothing that is created was created apart from him, not the wood I'm standing on or the air in your lungs. And he yet, he says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus is humility incarnate. And so humility in us, the development of humility is an active rejection and an active pursuit of the character of Jesus. Look back at the text, verse 7, at the end of verse 6. So that no one of you will become puffed up, arrogant in behalf of one against another. For who regards you as superior? He says, the answer to that question is only yourself. Only you do. Okay? Three questions. Who regards you as superior? Second one, what do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have in your life that you didn't receive? You see, if you start with a different question, if you start with, what would my life be like without Jesus? That changes the answer to, what do you, what do you have that you didn't receive? You see, grace reminds us of who we were and who you were without him. And then when you get that, you look around you and everything in your life is set ablaze as a gift. They're all gifts. They're all straight from the Father's hand. And at that point, the next step is to radically um, change the way that you approach relationships because we're all on the same plane. We are all at the bottom of a deep, dark hole and we only exist and are here today because of the grace of God. And that will kill judgment and help us move towards each other in some of the actions of humility. Can I give you some hard ones? I just got three. How about bearing someone else's praise while you are forgotten? Bearing the praise of someone else while you are forgotten. Homeschool moms or dads, somebody meets your kids and they see them and they go, man, you have exceptional kids. They're so smart. They're well ahead of everything. They must study and work hard. And you're thinking, I had something to do with that. Bearing the praise of someone else when you yourself are forgotten. Almost inevitably and every time we protest against that, don't we? We raise our hand and we say, uh, me, look at me, I'm here too. My daughter, I saw this in my beautiful daughter, when she went on her first international mission trip in a certain role. She did not and was not chosen for that role locally when it was done. Her best friend was. And she struggled with that. I'll be honest with you, she wasn't floating in angel wings. Oh, everything's fine. No, she struggled with that, okay? But after some prayer, talking with her mom and I and her grandmother, she moved towards her best friend, and this is what she said, I am so happy for you. I'm so happy that you got your part, that part. It was a struggle for her, right? But here's my 10, 11-year-old daughter. I'm seeing some fruit of humility in it. How about you? To bear the praise of others while you yourself are forgotten. How about this? To remain open to questioning when someone challenges you or says, uh, what you just said, is that correct? Or did you think about this? Almost all the time we protest against that, don't we? Are you, are you, are you challenging me right now? Is that what's happening? Because I'm about to, I'm going to load my thing here, make sure all my bullets are in. All right, we're good. You ready? Let's do this right now. All right. Somebody's going to be dead on the floor at the end of this and it's probably not going to be me. I'm just going to warn you. Okay. When somebody challenges us, right? I'll tell you, I went on the Israel trip with Dr. Dave Anderson, 
And I was just arrogant enough to ask him a question after a devotional he did and challenge a date that he included in his devotional. I did it privately. It was my only saving grace, okay? I went up to him and I was like, oh, well, you know, uh, I remember in seminary that the date that I learned for that is different than the date that you… And I was expecting a conversation. He goes, oh, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm sometimes a little off on my dates. You're probably right. And I was like, thank you. I did not see it going that way. Okay, uh, we're good, you know. Um, to have a humble approach when you're challenged or questioned, famous story from Abraham Lincoln, one of my favorites, one of my heroes. I love reading about him. In the middle of the war, he moved a massive regiment from point A to point B because of some pressure. It was the Secretary of War, Swinton was his last name, heard about it and said, absolutely not. If President Lincoln did that, he is a fool. We are not doing that. The word got back to Lincoln, Secretary of War, Swinton called you a fool. This was his response. If Secretary Swinton said that I'm a fool, I must be a fool because he's almost always right. I will go talk to him and we will see he met with Swinton. Swinton explained, and he came out and told the people and the reporters Swinton was right. It was a foolish decision that I was made, and we corrected it. The president of the United States. Huh? How open to you are being of being challenged, being questioned? This is a time when humility can begin to grow or pride can show up. Last, what about comparison and jealousy? Comparison and jealousy are those times in our life and those mental attitudes where pride wants to thrust itself through the soil and grow fruit. And humility seems to be cowering away in the shadows. Comparison and jealousy. I want that. I'm comparing myself to them. I think of the prayer of a girl named Irma. And she says, Lord in heaven, if you can't make me skinny, Please make my friends look fat, all right? I'm thinking, she's honest. <laughs> she's sure honest. And you know as well as I do, we have some thoughts like that, don't we? We have some thoughts like that. I know that the person I'm working with or the guy across the room in our, in our group, he's younger than I am. He's got less experience than I am on our team. He's uh, less educated than I am. For some reason, he's fast-tracking up the ladder and I'm lagging behind and I'm jealous, and it makes me angry, and pride jumps up, and what I want to do is chop down that ladder with some arguments and tell you why that guy's not as good as I am. When jealousy and comparison spring up, it's an opportunity to reject pride in all of its forms and pursue actively the character of Jesus. The idea of being puffed up. You realize that the fruit of pride makes us judgmental towards each other. The answer to that, according to Paul, is a gift of grace with the memory of who you were without Jesus, all together at the bottom of a hole. And then when you look at your life around you, understanding that everything becomes ablaze as a gift of God, everything. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it because you are at the bottom of the hole and everything is grace. Everything but the lake of fire is grace. And that should change our hearts and minds to radically 
and differently approach the relationships in our life to say, I'm not better than you. We're all beggars at God's door. We're all beggars together. It's only by grace that we're here. And so I'm not going to look down on you. I'm not going to arm wrestle you for space or attention, but I can move in completely fulfilled by God's grace into a relationship that's brand new, that's brand new. And I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. This is a great sermon for your husband. (laughs) Great sermon for your wife, all right? I got this down, but the problem is theirs. So they better listen up. I'm going to put this on a flash drive and punch it into their car audio and make sure it's on repeat, okay? Because they're the ones that need some humility. I'm on the way. At least I'm better than they. I'm further down the track than they are. I'm working harder than they are. You see the language that's going through your head? Comparison, judgment. The only person that you can work on is you. The only person that you can control is you. And yes, everybody around you is struggling. Everybody around you is struggling. But remember, we're all at the bottom of a deep, dark hole and we're all there together. It's only by God's grace that we're out. Okay? So you work on you. You reject pride in your life in every of its forms. You're not yet perfect, nor am I. You actively pursue the character of Jesus in all of its forms, especially in humility, and you're not yet there, nor am I. Okay? Remember Jesus at the end of his life? Last supper with his friends, no one had washed everybody's feet. So Jesus gets up, takes off his tunic and wraps a towel around him and kneels in front of every disciple. Peter, who would reject him. John and Nathaniel, who would flee. John showed up later, but the rest of them didn't. Oh, and also, by the way, Judas, who would betray him with a kiss. Yeah? If our Savior, the God of the universe, does that, why would we not actively pursue that same approach to everyone in our life? There is a statue of that scene, Jesus kneeling with a basin of water, washing Peter's feet at Dallas Seminary, where I went to school. And a friend of a friend was giving a guy a tour there, and uh, his friend got and sat next to Peter on the statue and put his foot in the bowl. And my friend freaked out. He was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Somebody's going to see you get down. What is that? It's very disrespectful. And my friend, uh, my friend's friends jumped down and he said, okay, but I think you misunderstand the point. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Isn't that why Jesus condescended and washed our feet so that we would never forget that? Aren't we supposed to put our foot in the bowl? And then remember that if the God of the universe did that, that's how we should approach everybody else? Isn't that the point? And my friend goes, yeah, maybe, but please don't do that. It's awkward, okay? I'm going to get in trouble. All right. This humility can radically change the way that you approach relationships, and it is a gift of God's grace in your life. You have been listening to Pastor Scott Pollock, a powerful message in regards to the destructive power of pride in our lives and the healing that humility, a gift of God's grace, will bring. Consider sharing this podcast with a friend, along with Scott's free e-booklet. We invite you to download the booklet, Grace, Simple and Profound, at gsot.edu forward slash simple grace. 
That's gsot.edu forward slash Simple Grace. Download your copy today. So glad you tuned in today. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership. 